0: You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories podcast with your host, Matthew Price. Today, I have a little bit of a different show than normal, actually. Uh, We usually focus on people that are currently in the field. But this time, I wanted to get a perspective of somebody who spent a long time in the field, about 15 years or so, uh, about 20 years total between volunteering and as a keeper at the San Francisco Zoo. But he, unfortunately, for us, for our field, no longer works in in the industry, uh, but he's moved on to other things. So, um, but I thought it'd be really fun to get the perspective of somebody who has moved on from the field, you know, and talk to them a little bit about why they have decided not to, to work in the industry anymore and, uh, you know, what they're doing now and how they still, you know, keep that part of their life and their thoughts and all that. So today we have Anthony Brown, uh, who worked at the San Francisco Zoo. We actually started pretty close to the same time at the San Francisco Zoo. Uh, he was an intern in 2000 and I was an intern in 2001. Um And he continued on as a keeper there for a while while I was there um, um, and much longer than when I was there, actually. <laughs> so, uh, and I just wanted to hand it off to you, Anthony. The first thing I do like to ask my guests is, you know, what was it early on in your life uh, or or was it even early on in your life? Uh, and what was it that kind of made you fall in love with animals and uh, eventually want to do it as a career?
2: Hey, Matt, it's good. It's good to see you. haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. So my love for animals, I think, you know, I blame it on my dad. Um, growing up, as long as I can remember, uh, it was sort of the routine where we, we went to the zoo, we went to the Steinhardt Aquarium, we went to Marine World, uh, when it was Marine World, Africa, USA, and Vallejo. Um, so as far as I can remember being a kid and looking back at photos, there are always these trips to the zoo, to the aquarium, to the... Um, a Marine world style park. And I think that those, uh, those trips, you know, always having pets, um, I had a pet canary when I was like five years old or something, obviously, you know, it was my canary except I didn't do anything. My dad took care of it. Um, so his, his love for animals, uh, you know, you look back at photos of him when he was a kid and he always had Guinea pigs and and different types of pets and stuff. So that love sort of passed on to me and being in San Francisco, we've got a few places that we can visit to get up close to animals and, that kind of uh, really is what, what started my love for animals.
1: Awesome. What was the first step then that you took to, you know, go down the the path of actually working for a zoo or in the animal care professional in general? Did you start out as a volunteer or uh, or how did you get started on your path, I guess?
2: Yeah, so I actually, uh, fortunate enough to be growing up in San Francisco, we have, um, the at the San Francisco Zoo, they have a... Uh, an incredible volunteer program. There's there's a couple of them at this point now for for teenagers. But uh, when I was a teenager, there was basically one, and it was the Nature Trail program. And those volunteers are 12 to 16. Uh, and those guys are on this area called the Nature Trail where they teach you how to handle hedgehogs, snakes, toads, newts. Um, and most importantly, they teach you about interpreting, animal, handling animals, interpreting them to the public, uh, talking to the public. And so that's kind of really where I got my start. I sometimes I look back and think that, you know, that if, if I would have missed that day in middle school <laughs> when the Zoomobile came by <laughs> and what happened was the Zoomobile came to Horseman Middle School and gave a presentation. And at the end of the presentation, they said, Hey, we have a volunteer program for, you know, kids your age. If you want, if you're interested, come on down to the zoo on this date and, uh, Fortunately, I was at school that day, and so <laughs> I was able to, to make it to the zoo. I always think back and wonder, wow, man, if I was sick or something and missed that day at school, my life would be yeah so different.
1: Um, so then that was pretty much self-initiated then, like right away. Like you knew that you wanted to be involved in some way, and then uh, your parents were able to, to foster that uh, desire to do that. Yeah. I mean, I kind
2: of, I grew up, you know, my parents just kind of making it. And so, you know, growing up in a low income household, we had, we were able to take advantage of a scholarship and the scholarship, uh, for the nature trail program at the time was, you know, I think there were some fees maybe with the sweatshirts that they would cover and they'd cover a lunch ticket. So you'd get lunch and it was like, Hey, here's somewhere. It's, it's the summer months, you know, like, what are you going to do? There's really not much to do at that age. And so I went to the zoo and, um, uh went to the zoo a couple of days a week and learned how to handle animals and talk to people and made a ton of friends. It's really uh the nature trail program you know was was the start of everything and the way that the program is set up, there's uh, sort of the next level uh, volunteer, which is this junior zoologist uh, which basically takes all over so if nature trail is twelve to sixteen, the junior zoologists are you know fourteen to eighteen or something um so i did a nature show for a couple of years and then I uh, became, was sort of promoted to be a junior zoologist. And then with the junior zoologists, you're, I mean, really, it's, they don't call it this, but after all the experience that I then later got in life, now looking back, junior zoologists is like zookeeping school. They, they teach you everything about. Obviously, you don't have the responsibility, uh, the the direct responsibility that a zookeeper would have, but you're handling animals, you're cleaning cages, you're exercising animals, you're filling out uh, behavior charts, uh, you're making diets. You're basically doing everything that a zookeeper would do but for ferrets, hedgehogs, snakes, iguanas, hawks, owls, and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, I don't really know. I'm sure they are out there, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't know any other... Uh, zoos that have that kind of I don't know how does it called a feeder program but the fact that they get you in there early and you know they kind of mold you in, in the direction where they want to see you, you progress through volunteering the junior zookeeping and then um, through there is that how you then found out about the, the year-long internship and did you go right into that from the junior zookeeping program I imagine I mean I imagine it was a great transition because you were working with all those zoo, junior zookeepers at the time so you you kind of had a team already in place right yeah? Exactly. And there's almost like,
2: if you think about it from a numbers perspective, it's almost like a pyramid and definitely yeah. the nature trail program and the junior zoologist program, they uh, dovetail with one another really, really well. There will always be more nature trailers than there will be junior zoologists because there's kids that it just doesn't work out. You know, they go a year and uh, they don't do it again. Um, right. Kids that are persistent and keep doing it and are doing a good job, then make it to that next rung. And then there are kids that make it to the next rung and they can only do that for a year and take off. So it's kind of like each year, the way that it lines up, Most of the volunteers are starting at 12 years old. And in order to do an internship, uh, it's, you're basically, it's the 18 year olds. So you needed to volunteer for six years. And so each, every, each year, there's, you know, sort of a formal cut between nature trail to junior zoologist. Uh, and then each year of junior zoologist, you know, the pool narrows down. People's lives change. They move. They've got other things that they need to focus on. Uh, for the internships, there were at the time there was a couple year internships, and then they had a few summer internships. And there's this weird thing that you know they don't. I don't remember the zoo. I mean, the zoo didn't really court or coax anyone in any direction. But just from observation, being in the program for so many years, you're always looking up and seeing the different roles and and what they do. And at the time, you know, a lot of this has changed. This is so long ago. But sure. at the time, they were really focused. And so, and the for the summer internships, there was. One that focused on those nature trailers and that nature trail program. Then there was one that focused on the wildlife theater show. And then there was one that uh, floated around. And then for the year internships, there was uh, what they referred to as the programming intern, which kind of focused on the organization of the volunteers and sort of keeping track of of all the volunteer programs. And then there was the husbandry intern, which focused more on, you know, sort of maintenance projects and uh, weighing animals and and making sure that animal uh, record keeping is is um up to date. Obviously under the direction of full time staff, uh, but the, and all these programs live at the zoo's animal resource center and they it's it's incredible. I mean there's no way you know that there's that saying it takes a village like the <laughs> the Nature Trail, Junior Zoologist, Wildlife Theater, Zoomobile, all of these programs all live under this department that has just a few staff has a few staff members now, I believe, and had even less when I was a volunteer. And it really is uh it's it's remarkable how much responsibility you get as a volunteer and, and what you learn. Um, yeah.
1: So I was just going to say, the, like the wide variety of animals that you guys had there, uh, you know, from the kids all the way up to the 18 year old interns, you know, you just get to work with such a wide variety of things. Like it sets you up for, Hey, I already know how to work with a bunch of all this stuff. And now, and I also have worked about with a bunch of this stuff so I can figure out what I actually like to work with. Um, so that is just an incredible opportunity, um, for, for all, for all the way through that program. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. that it was such a great place to, to grow up as a zookeeper for sure. Okay. So, uh, you went through the internship. Uh, what was, what, what happened next after your career at San Francisco? I know eventually you got to penguins, uh, but I know there's probably something in between, uh, those two, those two lives.
2: Yeah, I really lucked out. So during my internship, I, um, one of the things I would do is I believe it was on Mondays. It was a little slower on Mondays during the, the off season. Um, there was a golden eagle, um, that the animal resource center managed and that I was uh, a caretaker for as an intern. And, uh, everyone had a really great relationship with this bird. She was really incredible. I mean, she's a huge bird, incredibly friendly. And so we would go and take her to like the, cafeteria, like cafe area at the zoo, uh, to basically scare the gulls away because the <laughs> zoo is right on the coast and yeah. there's all sorts of gulls trying to take people's hot dogs and stuff. So we, uh, people would show up to the eating area with the raptors uh, to interpret and talk to the public as a, as like a primary goal. And then the secondary goal was the presence of the raptor meant that the goals were scared and they'd all take off. And so I just, I kind of made it a habit of like, I think it was Mondays. I'd always go and and take the golden eagle up there and just talk to the visitors and whatnot. And it turns out that, that the time of the day that I would do that around that time frequently uh, would be like a break time for a lot of zookeepers and they would Mm -hmm. go and uh, you know, get a quick cup of coffee or hot, hot, hot chocolate or something. And one of the curators, uh, Michelle Wardowski, uh, she was a curator of hoofstock. She would always see me there and, you know, everyone's really nice and friendly and you know, everyone's name. And I think she saw that like, wow, I'm just, you know, on my own, uh, direction sort of going up and wanting to talk to people, you know? And, and at the time, uh, I think she identified that as a very valuable skill, uh especially because at this point in the zoo's history they were in the planning phases for what uh still to this day was is the biggest exhibit that they ever built which is the African Savannah exhibit mm-hmm. which is a large, large multi-acre hoofstock exhibit for giraffes, zebras ostrich etc um and there was the part of the plan was that there was going to be a lot of interpretation that's that's the it was sort of one of those points where the zoo is pivoting into understanding how important that one-on-one interaction is and how important that interpretation was. And so I caught her eye talking to visitors about this, this eagle that I love to bring up there. And um, as my internship came to a close, I kind of tried to hustle a little bit to get a zookeeper job. There yeah. Actually at the end of my internship, there wasn't a zookeeper job available and I was hoping to, you know, be able to like still, you know, make rent. So <laughs> I <laughs> So I uh went into – jumped into operations and drove the poop truck.
1: Yeah, um, I remember that actually.
2: Yeah, so I was the part-time poop truck driver. So there was like the the main guy that did it five days a week and I did it a couple days a week. Yep. And so a couple days a week I would drive the poop truck and it, at the time there was so much flexibility. It was really – you know, it really made all of this possible. I drove the poop truck a couple of days a week and then the other few days a week, I helped out in custodial and like blowing leaves and cleaning bathrooms and, you know, just doing that whatever needs to be done in the sort of the, that aspect of the operations department. And so a couple months of that, I then, uh, Michelle had, uh, an opportunity for me to bring me on as an as needed animal keeper in hoof you know, starting at the ground level. So I had a great little thing for a few years where I was, uh, Two days there was a set two days a week where I drove the poop truck and the other three days a week I worked in Hoofstock and if there wasn't a need for me in Hoofstock I would help out in custodial. Right. So it was really cool to be able to sort of hustle together and get that five days, you know, even though the sort of the three roles I had, as needed animal keeper, kind of like a part time as needed custodian and then the part time truck driver, it was all able to sort of wrap in together
1: into a full time job. Um, yeah, yeah. That's that's really uh was struggling for the word uh, but that's really uh um, <laughs> that's really a, a good effort on you because it was tough there at the end i know when i was the I, actually i remember when i got the intern they said that traditionally the interns went into a full time job but we were there at that time during the time when they were transitioning from uh city owned to private if i remember correctly so a lot of us uh, the younger guys we kind of like kind of lost those spots um so i struggled with that too like i stayed on as as needed after the internship and worked a little bit over at uh, Coyote Point Museum, which is now Curiosity, I believe, uh, in yeah. San Mateo. Um, but the fact that you were able to kind of, you know, stitch together those three roles, like that says a lot about, uh, at least, uh, you know, about, about you, but also to management saying, hey, this guy really wants to be here. You know, he's willing to do anything. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that was really instrumental in your success, early success as a, as a
2: keeper. Absolutely. And it gave me the opportunity to learn all sorts of things. I mean, driving the poop yeah. truck, you know, it's yeah. a big 26,000 pound truck. Yeah, talk
1: about that a little bit because I bet a lot of a lot of people that are not in the industry have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I'm sure they know that we have to put all the all the feces and poop everywhere, somewhere, uh, but I bet they have no idea about the process of that.
2: Yeah, so the the poop truck is pretty cool. It uh, you know, and every zoo seems to have a have it this set up a little differently. At this time, uh, you drove around in a big dump truck with a lift gate on the back, and you went to all the different areas in the zoo, all the different animal areas. And collected their waste, so you're basically the garbage truck. So when it came to primate and carnivore waste, the waste was all bagged up, and that was you know tossed in the trash compactor. Um, but for all the hoofstock, you know, at the time there there were elephants at the zoo, so you, you know you had, ele- you know, the elephants, the elephants, the hippos, the rhinos, and the giraffe. I mean, represented like two thirds <laughs> yeah, right, of that yeah. truck. I mean, that's right. a lot of wheelbarrows, you know. Yeah. And then you add on all the other miscellaneous uh, hoof stock uh, throughout the zoo, and then you add in the children's zoo and all the straw and bedding, and so all that gets lifted in and dumped into the the dump truck, and then at the time was taken to a composting facility, a, a little a couple miles away from the zoo. <clears throat> so it was a really fun job. So you got to the zoo before you were one of the first people at the zoo. So you you show up at the zoo, and the only other truck driving around was the food truck delivering diets for the for the day. Um, so you got to you know you got to have a little. Uh, sort of an intimate experience with the zoo cruising around and uh, seeing all the animals as everyone's waking up and getting active. Yeah. And you got to know, uh, you get to really meet everybody because on, you know, on your, just on one day of the poop truck, you were everywhere. (laughs) You know, you saw everybody. There's a handful of places that you would pick up their stuff uh, before they showed up. But, you know, as as the morning progressed, you were kind of cruising around the zoo and, and checking stuff out. And so, there was other miscellaneous stuff where you know they teach you how to use the bobcat for miscellaneous right, projects yeah. and forklift and all these tools and stuff and I don't know at, at the time being a young guy that that stuff was super fun you know
1: no you no know, and I think it's really cool that uh, I mean we're able to turn it turn all that waste into compost I don't know if, if San Francisco does it or did it um, but and San Diego does not do it but uh, Woodland Parks Zoo, they would actually have the public be able to come on grounds after the compost is ready and, you know, buy zoo for their own own gardens and stuff. So it's really cool that we're able to, you know, participate in, in that kind of reuse of our own waste, I think. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, I, one thing you uh, talked about that I wanted to go back to you real quick when you, when you uh, brought the Eagle out to the that food stand, I remember that food stand next to the playground very clearly. <laughs> even though it's been like 15 years because I can't even, rem- I, I can remember very clearly Multiple occasions where a guest like buys their hot dog, turns around to go to the table, and in swoops a, a seagull. and grabs it right off of their off of their tray and takes off. So I bet that golden eagle there. Uh, you know, the days you were there at least really helped out with that.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, so. Yeah. I worked in I worked in hoofstock for a number of years, uh, and and then I sort of bounced around. I worked in uh, the bird department for a little while. I worked in the children's zoo for a little while. I worked in primates for, like, six months or something. Uh, Never worked in carnivores, but uh, other than carnivores, worked in basically all the other animal departments in the zoo. Um, And sort of through those rotations, bouncing between different positions, and it's all this, like, really uh, in the weeds, kind of mumbo-jumbo, specific to the San Francisco Zoo. But I know every zoo kind of has their own setup. So with this, it was moving from, uh, you'd go from a temp position to a temp position, part-time to full-time, and... Then there were a couple of reorganizations through the zoo where the yeah. the zoo switched into a ten hour day, which caused a reorganization, and then they went back to eight hour day, which caused a
1: reorganization. Um, the ten hour days was epic. oh my gosh, like they're so hours. nice. That's the best. I <laughs> missed the four tens. Like I worked four tens at Disney. I missed them so much because those extra two hours were like, I mean, it didn't really feel like an extra two hours, and you could get so much more stuff done. And then you get to the end of your week, and now I got three days. I can take a mini vacation every single weekend. You know, it's just. Such a nice schedule. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'd work, I'd work 315s. I mean, oh once, you, gosh, yeah. <laughs> once you're once you at the zoo, you know, like just,
2: yeah. it's, you're there, you know. Uh, if, Cause, if, you
1: know, in your typical eight hour day, I, I don't uh, remember exactly how it was there, but here, like most of the strings are, are pretty dang full. Like you're at a six, you're probably close to seven, seven and a half hours of, of work, you know, so the time to get to, you know, the extra stuff like exhibit improvement and enrichment and training was, is always a struggle, you know, whereas with that 10 hour day, you know, he always had time for all that stuff pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, So, okay. So uh, as we're bouncing around the zoo here um, and I know where you're going to end up eventually, but was there any, anything in particular, during this time that you knew you wanted to work with, was there a goal that you had for, Hey, I, eventually, I want to get to working with this species um, or, or this team or whatever. Did you have a, have any feelings like that at that point? Or were you still kind of like feeling it out and becoming like a generalist? So, so some, I thought that I was a hoofstock
2: guy. I wanted, I didn't want to work with an animal unless it outweighed me by, uh, you know,
3: <laughs> yeah, by yeah.
2: like five times, 10 times right. or whatever. Um, you know, I really enjoyed Hoofstock. I think the the team that I started working with in Hoofstock was incredible. I was so fortunate to be on the uh, Savannah opening team. You, you know, yeah. so when that exhibit opened, uh, you know, the, basically the six months leading up to the exhibit opening, this team was sort of put together and, and it broke out. And they actually, we had a, a curator assigned us. And it was a sort of a separate entity from the rest of the Hoofstock department. And our whole focus was take care of all the animals that are uh, coming in from other zoos and currently live at the zoo that are going to live in this exhibit, move them around strategically based on the places that they need to be, and then eventually move and introduce them into the three-acre
1: exhibit with these Mm -hmm. brand-new state-of-the-art barns and all this fancy stuff. By the way, that barn, is that giraffe barn is gorgeous. I was there a few years ago. Uh, I think it was maybe five or six years ago, actually, but it was the first time I had seen it. And that that with the with the red hardwood and everything in there, I've never seen a more beautiful uh, uh, barn like that. So that that's incredible. It is a beautiful barn.
2: It's a little tall. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a little tall. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So the, I think the you know definitely the Savannah opening team really stood out to me as uh, as a moment. It was a great with the the group of keepers too. We were from all over the place. There was no. There wasn't uh, sort of a direct continuity that you would think uh, to create that team. It was people from all these different departments and got to work with a bunch of people that I had never worked before, worked with a couple people that I had worked before. And it was great. I mean, it also helps that it was like went, without, uh, went on without a hitch. I mean, it was uh, it, the introduction movement of the animals went great. Um, introductions went great. And I mean, to this day, it's most visitors, uh, one of their favorite parts of the zoo.
1: Okay. So Africa, we were, we've got through Africa. We're on the host team. How, how, how do you get from there to penguins? Like what was the impetus to make that move? Uh, and I, I guess, you know, why, why did you decide you were, you were, necess- or did you decide that you were, you know, you wanted to move on from the, the big host talk?
2: Yeah. So um, another reorganization. So while, okay. while we're, while we're in the African Savannah, I believe the way I, th- I believe we're still on 10 hour days. And when we switched to eight hour days, when everything had to switch, there was a seniority based sign up and mm-hmm. every, and then the Savannah was put back there the, at the, when the Savannah was open, there's basically, it was sort of, there's two very large barns. There's a giraffe barn on the other side of the exhibit, sort of a barn for everything else. And then there's a big aviary. And so when the exhibit opened, all three of those uh, facilities were all one section. And so when the four tens went away, Uh, the two barns, uh, went into the hoofstock department and then the aviary went into the bird department. And through that sign up, I ended up going into the bird department. Uh, it was at the time, it was a choice between a couple different spots and I kind of went to the bird department with the intent to get back into hoofstock as soon as possible because while I'd worked with birds for a little while, I, hoofstock was my thing. Yeah.
1: Thing, but. That's a big, that's a big change. Like you don't often find. People that were in host stocks that want to go to birds, or people that were bird keepers wanting to do really anything else. Yeah, uh, the, so. and you
2: look, and when I think when those two types of people and those two departments sort of look at each other, especially bird department to host stock is so oh, yeah. different from one another. You know, it's it's like you know, here's the hoofstock keepers going, well, how many wheelbarrows of crap did you fill, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, the
1: bird keeper's like, how many leaves did you scrub today? It's awesome. Yeah,
2: totally. <laughs> the bird keeper's like, it rained today, so everything's yeah. clean. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, you, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different type of work, uh, different type of animals, and I, I enjoyed working with I definitely, you know, um, a zookeeper I worked with, Uh, obviously at the San Francisco Zoo a number of years ago, she had the greatest answer ever to like, what's your favorite animal? And I I, I probably do have a favorite, but I love her answer. And it's whatever animal I'm working with at the time. And I think at this point in my zookeeping career, I'd worked with enough sections that you really, like no matter what string you're on, whether you're working with the koalas, whether you're working with the giraffes, whether you're working with the flamingos, animals are just fascinating, you know, and you definitely, you take that second to stop and watch and observe and uh, you fall in love with them, you know?
1: I love that you said that because I think when keepers get to like, I don't want to say, I guess like rough patches where you're kind of like, uh, do I want to be doing this? You know, I think a lot of those are the ones that aren't taking that time. Just take a, just take a step back and be like, Hey, I'm doing a really cool job. You know, like there, there's not very many people that get to do this and, they get kind of caught up in the, whether it's the politics or the, the uh, you know, the more tedious aspects of the job or whatever. And then that's when they start getting cranky or fed up and that kind of stuff. And I'm always like, hey, you know, take a step back. You're working with elephants, you know, look at how awesome that thing is out there and what you are doing for it. So um, I really love that you made that point. Yeah. Um, okay. So bird department, uh, did you go, I know I keep saying penguins, 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 because that's why that's really what I think of you as now, because uh, yeah, I know you are the, the SSP coordinator for a while, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so, so when when you went to the bird department, did you directly go to penguins at that point or did you, uh, were there other stuff in between there?
2: Yeah. Um, so I, I basically, I bounced, I floated around the bird department and then they trained me on penguins and I, it must've been my second day, second or third day of training. I remember the, the keeper that trained me, Brenda, she says, I, there was, a an animal, it was a medical case or something. And it was an animal that she had to work with. And it was my second day or third day of training. So I had to just sort of step back and watch as, you know, um, they're um, doing like a physical examination for one of the birds. And as I'm sitting there watching, it just clicked. And I thought, wow, these are the most obscure animals. Like penguins are just so different from everything, you know? And I think it was that second or third day where it really just, it snapped. And I remember telling Brenda, these are really strange animals. <laughs> and it was like, I just have such a curiosity that I just really started to, the, the questions started popping up. Why did they do that? How does that work? Wow. That's incredible that they can do this. Uh, and you know, that, that's basically was like sort of the spark, the ignition that, that took off and, um, that yeah. uh, I worked with the penguins and, and sort of floated. And then I was, uh, took care of them on, uh, uh, that was like the relief, you know, a couple of days a week and then people move around and go other places and I end up becoming the primary penguin keeper. Um, and worked with them that they were really, you know, throughout, basically throughout the rest of my zookeeping career, there was penguins, 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 penguins. Um, so when
1: did you start there? With the penguins?
2: With the penguins? I started in 2005? Okay.
1: So you had a good 10 years or so.
2: Almost uh, ten years. years. Yeah, it was wow. like eight. I think it was eight years, eight or nine years with penguins. Yeah, two thousand six, I believe. Um, yeah. So I, the, the penguins, I just absolutely fell in love with them. There's, I think it's the the animals are incredible. It was the type of work too. It's very um, analytical. And and to to provide some context, it's not just um, the penguins are something really special at the San Francisco Zoo. The Magellanic penguin colony there was the first ever successful colony. Of Magellanic penguins to be managed in captivity. Oh wow! And uh, was uh, was and still is I'm pretty sure most likely the largest uh, colony of Magellanic penguins uh, anywhere in captivity in the world. So at the time when I was working with them, the colony kind of uh, bounced around plus or minus five or six birds off of 50. So you know some some penguin keepers have like six birds, some penguin keepers have like 12. The whole time that I was taking care of them, it was 50. And I think that's I, out of
1: control. I was like
2: 56, you know, so
1: a lot of penguins. You can get to know everything. <laughs> yeah, you know. that's crazy, man. You get now, to know- I know why, now I know why whenever I walked by there, there was always like an assistant, like, uh, you know, marking off who got which food or which, which one ate, which how much, how much smelt or whatever it was you guys were feeding today. Because that's a lot to keep track of by yourself.
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So there's a group of volunteers that would go out during feedings. And uh, so as you're feeding the penguins, you'd tell them uh, who's eating what. And there's a lot of, uh, the penguin, um, there was a sort of a scheduled feeding that the, the public could see. And so it really, I'm a very analytical person. So there's lots of charts and there's lots of science and there's lots of data on the back end because yeah. it's, because it's not just like sort of when you think of, um, I used to think of it as, uh, you know, and the, the zoo doesn't frame it this way, but when I look at zoos, I think of, uh, the different animals and I always think of, you know zoos can there's sort of this uh, continuum of man, animal management you have like simply exhibiting the species uh you then have sort of exhibiting the species with other species and maybe some type of partnership or collaboration and then you have exhibiting the species and breeding actively and regularly and sort of you know you can kind of scale up scale up scale up and with the penguins and this is, you know, thanks to all the zookeepers that took care of the penguins the, you know, two decades leading up to when I started working with them, that this program had had sort of been built and it was a program. You know, it was more than just uh, it was more than just feeding and taking care of the animals. There was right. the breeding aspect. There was uh, the, you know, the stud books, SSP aspect. Um, it, it was a, an incredible experience. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have been able to do it for as long as I did.
1: There was one really I can't even remember what year it was or if I was even still there, but I remember a story, and I don't even know if you were there at that time, but there was a story about you guys got some brand new ones in, and one of them decided it was migration time, and got the entire colony like swimming and swimming and swimming for I don't even know the length of time, but some ridiculous amount of time and it was it was i think I remember hearing like it was difficult to to feed them at that time because they were just so interested in migrating or swimming wherever they thought they were swimming. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, if you remember anything about that particular story?
2: Yeah. So I I wasn't working with them at the time. Okay. But I'm very familiar with the story. Okay. And in that I wasn't working there at the time, I don't know exactly what was being observed. But in the eight years that I did work with the penguins, I did observe – the Magellanic penguin in particular is incredibly seasonal. So you have breeding season is the exact same time every single year. No, no matter, matter where they're
1: at on the planet. So like the ones that at the zoo are breeding the same oh, time as the ones in the wild.
2: No, kind of ob- or, okay.
1: opposite on the calendar. So, so obviously, cause it's a different hemisphere right?
2: length of day. Exactly. Cause they're in the Southern hemisphere. Yeah. Right, so, right, right, right. um, so for, you know, so much so that like stuff is so dialed in that you used to be able to say, um, you know, for breeding in particular, and breeding is the anchor to the penguins' behavior throughout the year. And you can almost you can almost say there's some years where, and there's a number of years where this actually happened, and it was so easy to remember based on the different uh, lengths of uh, each phase. But it was basically sometimes the first egg would be laid on April first, and so like within a few weeks around April first, boom, April first is sometimes the first egg, and then boom, they lay all their eggs, and then the eggs hatch generally in May, in the middle of May. Sometimes the first egg hatches on Mother's Day. And the penguins live down there with uh, their parents and generally can stay on exhibit until it's time to be socialized. And at the point when they need to be socialized and they're, they're wanting to explore the exhibit area, sometimes would be on or around Father's Day. So you kind of have wow.
1: like, yeah. and Those a good PR events for the zoo too, huh?
2: Yeah. Oh, and the first one, I forgot the first one. So it's like breeding behavior is frequently observed in the middle of February. So Valentine's Day, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of go Valentine's Day, April first, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and those holidays. If you remember those in your head, being the penguin keeper, really, when you actually look at the data, you're like, wow, this is this is an incredible guide, you know. So they're really set on what they need to do. So you know, the beginning of February, they're starting to think about some breeding stuff. they middle of February, they're starting to get going. End of February, it's full full tilt breeding season. Uh, eggs get laid. Eggs hatch, chicks are reared, chicks are on the island, and then by the middle of June, middle to end of June, it's time for the chicks to go, and boom, we start molting. And then the birds are molting, uh, from, you know, the end of June, early July, through, uh, the end of October. Mm-hmm. November, December, and January, as I always like to put it, there's nothing to do. Right? So they swim. They're penguins. And so that not only do they swim, but nobody else is doing anything either. Cause for molting, it doesn't, each bird doesn't take, um, from, you know, each bird doesn't take, uh, July through October to molt. Each right. bird, it takes a few weeks to molt, but it's sort of based on their generation. They're sort of staggered. But what ends up happening is when you come down to the exhibit, there's someone on land for some reason. They're on land because they're laying an egg. They're on land because they're nest building. They're on land because they're rearing a chick. They're on land because the, they're caring for the chick. They're on land because they're starting to molt. They're on land because they're finishing molt. And based on all the generations, once you clear October, that November, December, January, then it's the, it's the three months of the year where all the birds are doing the same thing. And it's kind of what they do a lot of the other time, which is lots of swimming. But so that, that thing did, that was one of those things that just went supernova with the press. Uh, yeah. Kind of like went
1: viral before viral was a thing
2: international news. Yeah, yeah. They had It was like live on Good Morning America. They had like the satellite truck come to the zoo at like 4 a.m. or something. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. It was insane. But definitely in my time, I had made the observation that they generally do seem to swim a lot that time of the year. Um, if you dig into – the media definitely took that and ran with it. Okay. Uh, if sense. you look into some of the news stories, I think um, – I don't know who it was, but someone at another AZA zoo was like – they the press interviewed them, and their comment was something along the lines of yeah, they're penguins they swim a lot
1: <laughs> uh, um, comment that's the end of the comment. Basically, yeah, basically yeah okay so that was really more of a press generated thing than something that you know actually actually occurred okay yeah I think, I it was, I think it occurred, but it, was- it
2: occurred it occurred i think it ended up being that year that it really like stood out. And the only reason that I was able to formulate stuff is knowing that that had happened in the past. Yeah. And I think they, they could have observed it other years, but.
3: Gotcha.
2: We are, we, uh, humans are a pattern recognizing species that is not always a strength. It can frequently become a weakness. Right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Humans, humans yeah. on countless academic studies, humans, it's been impossible for humans to identify randomness. Even when they're presented with random, like, Going out of the way to pre- be presented with known random data, humans will find a pattern. And that just comes from a survival instinct. The yeah, yeah, that, yeah. The people that thought the shaking bush, uh, that there was a line in the shaking bush every time, they lived on. Right. <laughs> the, the people that were right 99 times out of 100 and said, you guys, that's just the wind. That one yeah. out a 100 times took them out of the uh, equation.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Absolutely. Because, you know, there's, there's a kind of comfort and patterns and recognizing when things are going to happen. Whereas, so we, so I think we as a species, you uh, know, naturally look for those kinds of things. I, and not just us. I think, I think that's true for, uh, for, you know, for most animals. I can't say all, but, you know, the dog recognizes that when you pick up, when he hears the leash being picked up, it's time to go out, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. So. Uh, he can pick that out of all of the randomness going on. So you're looking for those patterns, and no matter no matter what it is that's really interesting. Um, okay. Um, well, uh, so I, I mentioned a little bit ago that you became what's called the SSP coordinator for vice. the megalonic pen. Vice. Okay. The vice uh, Vice coordinator for that. So um, talk a little bit about what the Species Survival Program is, and I guess a little bit as, of your experience as someone working uh, directly with that program. Yeah.
2: So as vice coordinator, the, uh, the, the, so the SSP coordinator is, uh, at the time was a, a woman, I believe she's still the coordinator, um, a woman, Nancy Gonzalez at the Bronx zoo. Hi Nancy. If you're listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> she was the, um, she took care of the Magellanic penguins at the Bronx zoo, uh, um, amongst many other animals. Um, and she was the coordinator and I, she reached out and asked uh, if I was interested in becoming the vice coordinator, and so together w- the the way the SSP works is the species survival plan is basically assessing uh, keeping track of and assessing the uh, current population and making sure that the population is able to continue uh, to move on through generations in a sustainable,
1: responsible way. And when you say populations, you mean zoo populations? Zoo not, populations, Oh do know.
2: Exactly, right. yeah. So SSPs, there's all sorts of, there have been a lot of changes that occurred right before I became a vice coordinator. Uh, so at this point, you have the SSPs, you have a green, yellow, and red. Uh, and the green, yellow, red doesn't, uh, all that that is telling you is the sustainability of the captive population. So it has nothing to do with the status of the animal in the wild, it has nothing to do with if animals can be released into the wild or anything. It has everything to do with are all of the animals within AZA facilities, uh, is that population sustainable? It is, is this population enough? Um, and so the Magellanic Penguin is, uh, one of a handful of, uh, the minority of programs are green SSPs, which is like good to go. This population is sustainable. Keep up the good work. Um, Yellow SSP is, eh, it's not sustainable. There's a bottleneck coming. There's not enough individuals. There's a number of different reasons that'll, criteria that'll bump you into yellow. But yellow is like, without some type of change, this program is not sustainable. Red is without some type of drastic change. Like, red is, it's not sustainable at all. Like, and once again, it's demographics. It's, um, the number of holders. It's, you know, uh, the, all, all programs face the same challenges, which is, Like, you know, you need to, um, uh, every species survival plan has a couple people that are working on it and they send out recommendations and say, this animal should breed with that animal. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And it's not the zoo's fault in particular. It may be that those two animals are incompatible. Um, penguins are a challenging animal in that they pair with one another and they, you know, quote mates for life, you know? Um, so when a penguin pairs with another penguin, that's the penguin they want to be with. They don't care if the other penguin in the exhibit is better genetically for them they're going to be with this penguin so sometimes you need to figure out uh is it you know does do those penguins need to be split up and maybe go to different zoos so that you can achieve the the appropriate pairing and we found that at uh with the the Magellanic penguin colony at the San Francisco Zoo that you can successfully for the most part with like 99% success you can actually create a pair you, you can pair penguins up successfully if they're both single. So if you have okay. two birds that aren't paired with anyone and don't have their eyes on anyone, we can successfully, we have a, uh, there's a program in place that can successfully um, pair the the penguins together. If one of those birds has an interest in another bird, it doesn't matter what you do and what it is. It's like off exhibit honeymoon where it's like you guys hang out, get to know one another and everything could be great. You can do off exhibit honeymoon. Everything's fantastic. You do that for a few weeks, come back on the exhibit and whichever bird that, that one bird was interested in. They're going to just pair right back up. With, right, right, know, right. So. so there's a number of challenges why breeding recommendations can't can't be done. Um, but you know, animals need to be moved from zoo to zoo. Some programs need more space. They need more animals exhibiting the species. So, um, it's really exciting that the Aza is, uh, you know, had this. They had that aha moment a number of years ago based on a few presentations. I think it was the. Uh, People can blame it on the bird people. I think it was the avian scientific advisory group that really blew the whistle and said, you guys, something needs to change with the species survival plans. I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of zoo populations, uh, you know, the sort of the modern day zoo that we all know and the the way that sort of zoos have, quote, changed has been very, very recent. And so there's a lot of zoos that these uh, animal populations were built by having animals captured in the wild. And a lot of animals in zoos, a very few animals in zoos that you'll see exhibited were necessarily captured from the wild, but there are offspring of animals, obviously, there are offspring right. of animals that captured the wild, but were never managed in a program where where you may have a situation where, like, there may be one or two more generation <clears throat> left for that species without some type of drastic action, you know?
1: Right. Um, so just to just to summarize and put it into a kind of layman's terms, the species survival plan is basically it's like a list of every animal of that particular species uh, in, in zoos throughout uh, this country. So and the, the coordinator's job is to kind of match up genetically, uh, you know, pairs that look like they match up genetically. Like so if you have not had a lot of kids. You're at the top of the list because you're very genetically valuable if you've had a bunch of kids you're down at the bottom of the list because we don't necessarily need your your genetic line in the population anymore exactly
2: exactly there, there's a there's a couple derivatives off of it it could be you've never had any kids but your brother has okay. yeah, <laughs> right, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's basically the way I always try and explain it. yeah let me break it down for layman's terms the idea is to think about each individual family tree and the smaller the family tree for the individual is of living animals, the smaller that family tree, the more likely it is that there's going to be a breeding recommendation. If you have, uh, there are a number of penguins that are incredibly prolific and their whole family is just like everyone loves to breed and everyone has like incredible fertility and success. What happens is that happens for a few years and all of a sudden the tree gets so big that you had birds that you started off with maybe three years ago had high ranking and they were considered quote valuable to the program. Three years deep with all of that proliferation now they don't have a breeding recommendation anymore because they've had so many offspring. So it's kind of this sort of this ebb and flow. And then you have these birds that, oh, these birds have never had a recommendation. Could be because they've got all these living relatives at another zoo. And through altrition, as those birds pass away, all of a sudden these two birds that didn't have a recommendation now do have a recommendation. So it's kind of this constant seesaw. And the, the end game is to maintain genetic diversity and make sure the population numbers are where they need to be.
1: Yeah. And it, 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 and the animals, they ultimately decide, I mean, we can, uh, it's a great program that we can, uh, you know, scientifically determine which, which pair would, would work well together, you know, on paper, but the animals decide everything. Like, and I, I didn't even really think about penguins necessarily, but, because uh, I've worked at several facilities where we get a breeding recommendation, we get a new animal in and they don't want anything to do with each other. Uh, so it, it's interesting that we, and I bet that the public in general doesn't kind of think about those kind of things. It's, it's, it's like people, you know, if I was forced to go to sit in a room with one other person and I'm supposed to go breed with them, and they want nothing to do with me. Uh, well, that's my only choice. If we're, it's not going to happen here, it's not going to happen there. So then the SSP's got to, uh, you know, uh, um, revamp what's going on and, and try to make another recommendation for those young because They're still valuable, but now we have to get them in to another facility, um, you know, within their breeding time. Cause that's a that's a ticking clock too. So um yeah, there's all kinds of crazy challenges with
2: that. Yeah, and the you know, the penguins being a small colonial animal, you know, so they don't you know, the, the the colonial behavior for a penguin is that they don't cooperate, but they don't mind living next to one another. Right. So, you know, you could penguin introductions are really easy. You can kind of just put a penguin in an exhibit and oh introduction's done, you know. So if you have to move a penguin to another zoo, it's uh, pretty easy. They're they're small birds um compared to you know i think on the other end of the spectrum would probably be i mean obviously the the megafauna have all of their logistical challenges but definitely like a solitary animal you know like a tiger here's an animal that's difficult to move is uh it's kind of it's a big deal to move from one zoo to another and those guys have all sorts of challenges if it doesn't work, it could be really ugly, you know? And so, Yeah, I was going to say, like,
1: that's always a leap of faith when you put carnivores like that together. You know, you know, you look for the signs, we're well trained, we know what we're supposed to look for, when we're supposed to put them together, but sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes the animals, you know, instead of producing life, it costs lives in that regard. Um, and those are always, uh, uh, obviously, an unfortunate incident, but, you know, sometimes you have to take that leap of faith to, to better the species even if it's uh, maybe sacrificing that individual, I guess.
2: Yeah. And especially yeah. with those species and tigers in particular. Yeah. I mean, here, yeah, yeah, here's, yeah.
1: these are species that like very
2: well could go extinct in
1: our lifetime. Yep. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. It's like, it's, it's, um, full stakes. Yeah. And this, I mean, they're, the, and I don't know, I can't say in generally the bigger the animal and the more dangerous animal, more difficult it is. But I know, you know, just working with polar bears, like that that's a, that's a red population. We're not doing so well with breeding polar bears and we don't really know why right now in, in captivity. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, that's definitely a species that uh, needs, needs some help in that regard. Um, All right. Yeah, well, and I know, and
2: then not to get, not to get political, but no, I, no, I know no, from, no, no. I know from years ago, you know, there were some issues that in Canada, there was uh, uh, that, and I think this is still the directive. Oh yeah. Issue, that yep. They consider a polar bear better off dead than living in a zoo. So Absolutely. If you're a problem bear, uh, you know, they're, they're polar bears. The polar bears that um, I got to – I never worked with them, but the polar bears that I got to, to know and see at the San Francisco Zoo, uh, you know, one of them was a problem bear. And Pika, Pika right? Uh, uh, no, uh, Ulu. Ulu. Ulu, yeah. Um, and- I remember her
1: story. She, like, went into a town, got tranquilized, sent out 100 miles, and came back a second time yeah uh, and back she was again. a part of
2: polar bear people freak out like old school polar bear people freak out with her because she was a part of like they called her it was like the gang of four or something and it was her and a sister or two and her mom and behaviorally they were doing i forgot what it was specifically but behaviorally they they've done things that no one had ever observed polar bears do with regards to cooperating um and they were polar bears and it was i think i believe it was churchill right i'm in mean, the polar bear yep. capital of the world near there and uh it was she's she cannot be here anymore. So there were two choices: she's is either um put down or she's brought to a zoo. And at the time, the San Francisco Zoo was available to give her a home. And as it is today, if the the Ulu, if a polar bear is behaving exactly how Ulu has, who's I, I'm pretty sure Ulu's still. I've lost track. I mean, I've been out of the zoo for a year and a half, yeah, two yeah. years now, so I kind of lost track. I believe Ulu is still alive, and so that makes her like in her 30s, which is twice the age of how long yeah. they live in the wild? Yeah. Um, so you know the the Ulu individual right now, the policy of the Canadian government is that bear is to be put down and not uh, be given, uh, not not be, you know, it's a I know it's a very touchy word, but not be rescued right. and taken right. uh, to take a the zoo. You know,
1: destroyed is usually what. Right. But uh, oh, they, you know, oh, they I, want to
2: destroy, but they don't want to, you know, like the term of like rescue them and bring them to the zoo. They don't yeah, like
1: that's not rescuing for them. them. Yeah. exactly. And there is not now that we're on a polar bear tangent. I didn't intend to this. But uh, now that we're on it, um, Churchill, they do also have uh, what they call polar bear jail. And they will put um, problem bears in there, you know, with, you know, they're basically rooms with very little stimulus. They keep them for, I think, 48 to 72 hours. They put them on a fasting diet. And then when they release them, the idea is that they had, you know, not very good time in that facility, so they're not going to come back to that area again because they don't want to go back there. And I, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they've had like a seventy-two percent success rate or something of bears of those bears that they have had in that quote-unquote polar bear jail um, that have never come back to that area before and have gone off and you know wherever else they've gone. So oh, that's I think that's a, that's a pretty cool program. But another one of the challenges with that species is, is for the captive population is that. Um, they're because of, I think it's the marine, I can't remember which law it's in. They are protected by the Marine Mammal Act, but there's something, it may be Canadian law or some kind of international law that prohibits the um, the movement of uh, polar bears from other countries into the United States. So it's very difficult to get, to refresh that um, that genetic line without having success from uh, the animals that we already have in zoos or, or uh, cubs, because c- pretty much cubs are, you know, orphan cubs are kind of the only polar bears that we take out of the wild anymore Um, and those all have to come from alaska for the united states because that's the only place in the united states where there are polar bears so that's another challenge facing that species as well Um, but anyway let's uh move on a little bit let's go with uh because these might coincide i'm not sure so let's just go ahead and jump forward to um you know uh why did you decide to change careers to uh, you're a trader now you're an option trader Um, So what kind of made your What what kind of what was there a specific event specific thing that happened? Um, Was there anything that you can point to that said, hey, you know, I still really love this job, but maybe I don't want to do it uh, full time anymore, I guess.
2: Yeah. So I'm a, I, you know, I guess the, the formal, the formal title would be I'm an independent derivatives trader. So okay. I'm uh, now in the world of finance. <clears throat> I've always been interested in the markets and I followed the markets, uh, as a, as a hobby mostly for a number of years while being a zookeeper and, uh, being a zookeeper actually uh, allowed me to do it because, uh, you know, you're being lower on the seniority list. Like I've, I mean, I was a zookeeper, I think, when I left, it was I was a zookeeper for 14 years. Never had a weekend day off except oh for like God. temporarily. Yeah. Wow. So so my days off were always the week, the the weekdays. So I had Thursday, Friday off. So it was two days a week to actually watch the markets, and i just always had an interest in them. I, mean, I remember actually riding the bus to be a nature trail volunteer at the zoo and looking at the business section and looking at the stock tables and all the different, uh, symbols and prices and having absolutely no idea what I'm looking at, but just being fascinated by it. So while I was a zookeeper, I, uh, engaged the markets, uh, you know, a couple days a week on the side, mainly for, for fun Mm -hmm. and, um, reached the point where being a zookeeper, you know, when you, you add in the volunteer time, almost 20 years, I kind of reached the point where I started to realize that I think it may be time to try something else. and after that that 19 years or so i had been thinking yeah i think it's time to try something else so and uh towards the end of 2014 it just sort of reached the point where i decided it was time to make the jump make the leap of faith yeah. i think i also realized you know being i started uh volunteering when i was 12 i started as a zoo uh, you know i was an 18 year old intern i started zookeeping when i was 19 Uh, so all of that time added up where it put me into my early thirties and I realized that there was not going to, the, the door was sort of closing if I was going to make a change. Right. I mean, we, we all, uh, the the fact of the matter is you kind of, especially after you do something for so long, you kind of like sort of get set on that path and that track and you just keep going. And I decided I, I wanted to try, uh, something else. Um,
1: Okay. And so it wasn't necessarily like, I, I don't like this job anymore. It was just more like, I need to go try something else just to see if I can do something else really.
2: Yeah, it was a little bit of that. I definitely got a little frustrated. I mean, the, one of the challenges of being a, um, I think it, in any organization, but especially a nonprofit and especially in, in a zoo, you kind of, uh, being there as long as I did, you know, in, you know, we've kind of talked about all the zookeeping stuff. I, helped out with a lot of San Francisco zoos. I did, I was sort of, I've always had like an eclectic uh, interest base and eclectic skill set. And I helped out with zoos, San Francisco zoos, social media. You know, I gave her, it's great doing this podcast and I'm so excited you're doing this. I really wish <laughs> this podcast existed 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, I guess I wish podcasts existed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they weren't even there, but I, I actually gave a presentation to the AZA conference in 2006 in Tampa Bay. How to podcast? Because oh, I put wow. together a podcast for the San Francisco Zoo. Yeah. It was called "Behind the Scenes at the San Francisco Zoo," and I just, you know, I, I had this interest, and I kind of, you know, uh, uh, my bosses at the time were able to sort of move the schedule around to give me a little bit of time here, or there to help out the marketing department. So I helped that with the podcasting and that was right when social media started to blossom. So the San Francisco Zoo is actually the first zoo ever on YouTube. I get to take credit for that it was the first oh, to ever zoo on Twitter. Um, and I, you know, I helped out with a lot of the marketing stuff. I helped out with, um, a lot of emergency response stuff. Um, the arm response team, I became the arm response team coordinator for a while. We're putting together the, uh, uh, emergency procedures, uh, and training other people on, you know, what to do in the event of, uh, an emergency and had in the, uh, time that I was a zookeeper, experienced all sorts of things, lots of blood, sweat, and tears, and, and you know, uh, it takes a lot out of you, and it, it definitely, really it's it's a hard job to do. I admire, you know, anyone, that, <clears throat> anyone that's anyone that been a zookeeper for, you know, more than a couple decades, I just, it's, I admire them. I was, uh, what, what was her name, Connie, I believe? Connie, I I listen, to that in, for yeah,
1: 42 years as a zookeeper. 42 girl. years, at that first zoo, podcast. At the, yeah, at the same zoo. Yeah, at the same zoo.
2: That's incredible. I mean, the amount of, obviously the amount of change that she witnessed and, and it's a hard job on you. It's a hard on you physically. It's hard on you mentally. It's hard on you emotionally. I've got a lot of ideas on, on, uh, how like opportunities and things that I think could be, could be a lot better. And one of the things that I realized was, uh, just that there was a, I've, I had been so selfless. In my time as a zookeeper and sort of really giving it my all and 150%, that I realized it was time to be selfish. Yeah. And it was time to, to jump into, follow another passion. Coincidentally, this other passion, you know, a lot of people, it's like trader, finance, money. Like, what is that? That's so, a lot of people, they're like, from zookeeper to that, that's just crazy, you know? If you look at the average American zoo, though, and you're to sort of lay out the org chart and the background of people, um, a lot of people think of like, Oh, I want to be a zookeeper. Here are the zookeepers. These are the paths they went on. You've developed this great podcast talking about those paths. If someone wanted to be a veterinarian, there's, uh, you go to vet school, you become a vet tech, you know, there, there's a track for that. If you wanted to get into exhibit construction or maintenance, there's a track for that and fields for that. And as you move up, if you want to be like the head of marketing, you know, you go into, you're probably coming out of the marketing field. If you want to get into development, you become an expert in fundraising. And then as you sort of make your way to the top and you get to zoo director, zoo directors have all of these different types of backgrounds. And above the zoo director is the board of directors. And the world that I now operate in is the world that a lot of those board of directors operate in at many, many zoos. Um, and they, uh, you know, the, the world of finance presents uh, incredible opportunities to have lots of time and to procure financial resources so you know do does the zoo world see anthony brown come back in 10
1: years from the other side maybe that's awesome man i had no idea that that was part of maybe a part of your goal that's kind of that's kind of a secret plan Cause that's, yeah, no, that's an incredible, uh, way to, to, to kind of like go around the horn because I'm kind of in that, not this, this podcast is about you, but, uh, just, just a little bit on my current, p- uh, position, you know, I'm at this, I'm, I'm kind of at the same point where like, I feel like not that I've know everything there is to know about keeping because you can always, you're always learning little tricks every day, but you know, I'm at the point where I kind of feel like I've done most of the things I can do at my current level. So I'm trying to figure out how to get to that next step, whether it's to go into management or something else to come back around like you're doing. But that's an incredible perspective to be able to, OK, I'm going to step aside, acquire this skill. And now I'm going to come back in at you know a level that can perhaps make even more of a difference than I could at an individual level, taking care of the animals um, so exactly. that's really interesting. Yeah, that's that's incredible.
2: I think there's a slope. I think there's a slope to experience, right? And the yeah. more you do something, you know, you do something for one year, huge jump, and then yeah. the second year, big jump, third year, fourth year, fifth year. You know, they say it takes five years to master something. Uh, you know, six, seven, eight, and then it starts to you sort of have the you know the law of diminishing returns a little bit. Right. And exactly. each year is only adding so much to that skill set. Those mm-hmm. your ninth year will never add as much to your skill set as your second year did. You know, yeah. so by by trying different tracks and doing different things you now get exposure to. And it turns out markets are the you know, markets and being a trader is uh well, yes, obviously very different than being a zookeeper. There are a lot of similar uh um skills that are needed for both jobs. Um, the market is almost like a living breathing thing uh, that right. doesn't speak. And so, you know, the type of empathy that you build working with animals and being a zookeeper and um having to interpret and um, assess things um, is, is actually can, can apply to the psychology of markets as well. I think no, that, make,
1: that makes sense. Cause they're both kind of games of incomplete information, right? Like you're, there's some kind of predictive quality to, to both, to both fields. So um, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well let's, uh, I, I, I thought that maybe things, things things might've coincided, but they clearly didn't. So you're, uh, um, so I was wondering if there was anything that you see now or maybe see saw towards the end of your career, any point in your career that you didn't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, like about the way like a certain direction it was going, uh, you know, a certain standard of animal care something like that, uh, that you may have, you know, you know, kind of like if you like, I'm not sure really how I feel about that in the industry. Um, but, uh, so do you have anything kind of like that? Like things that you maybe weren't as much of a fan of, I guess. I think that I know it's really hard
2: and the zoo, the animal industry in general probably feels a little bit under attack. Um And so there's this natural instinct to get very defensive and there's this natural instinct to know, especially because of what we know, right? So, um, you know, we as animal care, or I keep saying we, as if I like stole a zookeeper. <laughs> I was still
3: in on, man. Once you're still in the club. Still That's right. Club.
2: It's a life, it's a lifetime yeah. thing. You know, zookeepers obviously know the animals better than anybody else. Um, but the fact of the matter is you get into like in business, they call it that there's uh they refer to it as KPI key performance indicator and sort of the, the KPI for, you know, a- Apple is going to be, you know, number of iPhones sold, right. Uh key perform- uh key performance indicator for Netflix is going to be number of Netflix subscribers. A lot of world of business. It's really, really easy to figure out what that KPI is. And zoos, I think, from a business angle, obviously, like attendance is kind of like an overall zoo angle uh attendance is your key performance indicator. but if you could break it down by departments, all of a sudden, what's the key performance indicator for the hoofstock department? what's the mm-hmm. key performance indicator for the bird department? And when you get into animal care, I think it ends up being really, really tricky and the fact i mean my in my experience, what I realized was what I feel from an animal care perspective, the key performance indicator that a lot of people just have trouble grasping is public perception. It doesn't matter how much, how much you know that that animal's doing great. If the public looks at the situation and says, Oh, I don't think that animal's happy. <laughs> that's, that's it. I mean, that's the yeah. end all. That really is the end all the perfect world. You can care for an animal and provide the, the highest quality of care for that individual or group of animals in a way that the public then uh, also feels is the most incredible thing ever. Right. And Every zoo has that. Every zoo has a number of exhibits and a number of species that are managed where the public comes around and they go, man, they've got a great, I would love to in a, in my next life be a lemur at the San Francisco zoo, or right. I would love to be a polar bear at the San Diego zoo. Um, but there are all sort of all these other animal exhibits and there's all these other animals. And I think that we, you know, the sort of the animal rights movement, um, I think the the zoo world, and and when I say zoo world, I definitely don't mean sort of the official mouthpieces of the zoo industry or the zoo world, but sort of zookeepers. You know, the people yeah. that really have their hearts and souls into it. I think there's you see this sort of quick response that is like you don't know these animals, I know these animals, and they're doing great, uh, rather than understanding that that per, that the perception really is everything.
1: Perception um, is reality. I mean, honestly, if if the mass the majority of people feel a certain way. That's the way it is. That's just, that's the perception is reality.
2: Yeah, exactly. And there's, I think there's when, when it comes to, you know, that I know that a lot of zoos are starting to talk about welfare and uh, wellness and, you know, which is great. Um, One of the key parts of welfare and wellness, I think applies obviously to animal care, but probably to every other aspect of the zoo. And that is, you're never there. You're never there. There's always Mm. something more that you could do. Mm. And, and, it becomes really frustrating as a zookeeper because, you know, you're you're taking care of some incredible animals that make great connections with the visitors and and maybe you're cooperating with some type of like conservation in the wild. There's all of these incredible things going on with this group of animals that you're taking care of. And right next door is this giant construction site where there's this massive new facility being built for some other animal. And That can be the most frustrating thing in the world, you know, because you know, and there's limited resources and it's definitely, I know it's a challenge psychologically and emotionally, but I think that, um, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, if you could wave a magic wand and have unlimited resources, the fact of the matter is, while not all, many zoos exhibits and many zoos facilities would change.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Right. And I think that's a. I think that's a really a, a big struggle for the older the older the zoo is, the more issues like that they have because, you know, you can you can replace an exhibit every year, but if you're a hundred years old, you're going to have an exhibit that maybe isn't the best and is going to go back to that you know perceived uh, reality of the situation. Oh, this you know um, you go back to like the old orang and and chimp exhibits that are basically concrete with surrounded by a moat with a bunch of metal things for them to climb on. Like the perception is not that great, and zoos are trying to get there, but. it's a, it's a, it takes time, you know, these construction projects are massive. Um, so, um, I think that's one thing that maybe the public doesn't see necessarily, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I I don't know where I'm really going with this point, but, but the, the, if if you, depending on what part of the zoo, zoo you're in, the perception of, of what those animals are doing and what their welfare is going to be completely different.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, it kind of, you know, sort of, um, so so the the one thing that I think frustrates me about the industry is, is that, uh, you know, quick to be defensive and, and rather than really appreciating perception. The other thing is I think that a lot of zoos are justifying their self, themselves on a stale, um, kind of a stale framework, which is kids come to zoos and they fall in love with the animals. And when they go home, hopefully they'll recycle. You know, and one of the observations that I made being fortunately young enough when I worked in the zoo world is I remember being on nature trail and it was like, that was my generation. That was our generation, Matt. We yeah. were the ones that were going to save the world. And it was important for us to connect with the animals. And, and then as you work and you volunteer and you intern and you get a job, and then all of a sudden you start hearing the same thing being said, but now about the next generation. Oh, these kids these days, it's really important that we teach them to recycle and whatnot. And it's kind of like, what's going on there? and i really admire i think one of the superheroes of the zoo world is uh the zoo director at zoo boise by the name of, name of steve burns and he's the guy they're the ones that created the quarters for conservation thing where you go to the zoo and I, when it started i think it was tw- yeah quarters for conservation it was like when you if you when they started what what they realized was they had the epiphany they said you know they also felt that uh they agreed with the point that i just made that a lot of what zoos are doing to justify their existence is kind of stale mm-hmm. and is is hard to quantify. And so they said, hey, rather than doing all the zoo stuff that we're doing and then just hoping that people leave the zoo and are conservationists, um, let's make it so that just simply by coming to the zoo, that's an act of conservation. So they started by having 25 cents from every zoo. you know, The, the zoo ticket got 25 cents more, uh, went up by a quarter, and that quarter went into a conservation fund. And when you buy the biscuits to feed the giraffe, that goes in the conservation fund. And when you buy the food to feed the goats, that goes in the conservation fund. When they're going to build a capital project, I believe it's five or ten percent. I think that you know, say they did like a hundred thousand dollar anteater renovation, and it was five or ten thousand dollars in additional funds was raised from zoo donors and the board to then be put in the conservation fund to benefit. I, I believe like with the anteater. So some of this may be off because there's many, many years that I heard all this stuff. Um, you know, they do the capital project and then the additional 5 or 10% that they raise goes to that species, to the leading conservation effort for that species in the wild. And the, the Quarters for Conservation, all of that money, the visitors come in and they get a token. They vote on which one of three programs should receive the money. It's incredible. And Zoo Boise is this tiny little zoo in Idaho and And here they are. I would just looked at their website today because I wanted to be able to throw some facts out. These guys over the past several years have donated a quarter million dollars a year to conservation wow. out of this conservation fund just from quarters? And just from quarter uh now it's fifty cents so now it's fifty cents of the ticket is going there and if you I think if you buy a membership, it's like five bucks but they- re- they truly have um they truly have transformed what it is to be a zoo. So, so, you know, here's Boise in the, in the middle of Idaho with this little zoo, you know, so all these are, you know, a lot of people get great ideas in zoos and that's, and uh, you know, depending on what zoo you're working on, although it probably goes all the way to Disney, the same argument. And that is like, Oh, we only have so many resources. There's only so much we could do, but obviously like the bigger super zoos have incredible amounts of re- resources, but to see a little zoo like zoo Boise have the courage to, to make this leap, I think is incredible. And you have a do- dozens of other AZA institutions have jumped on board. And I think that that, that mindset is just sort of thinking outside the box, um, is amazing. And, and it gets, it creates that dialogue, you know, like, uh, uh, Steve Burns, I, the presentation that I saw him give about this program at an AZA conference, you know, the way he put it is he talked of the, you know, they didn't do it for the symbolism, but the Then the symbolism that comes out of this program, you go to the ticket booth, you buy a ticket, and now 50 cents out of that ticket is going directly to the conservation fund. You're given a token. And when you walk around the booth, the very first thing that you do is you make a choice for conservation. Should the turtles get it? Should the bobcats get it? Should the tigers get it? Well, we you know whatever the programs are and how they move that about. And I just think that is phenomenal. No,
1: that's Uh really, that's really awesome. Cause we, I mean, I know we do cause in keeper talks, I always say, you know, there's lots of ways to be conservationists or help out with conservation, you know, just by coming to the zoo today, you know, we're a nonprofit and we're um uh we're a nonprofit and uh, we're a conservation organization. So, you know, everything above operating costs goes to wildlife conservation. And that's the, that's one of the lines we say, which is true, but there we don't have a way to quantify that for the guests. You know, we can't say, you know, 5% Five percent of what you just bought at the gift shop goes to conservation, and that's a really incredible way to not only say this is the exact amount times however many visitors is going to conservation, and you get to choose where it goes. So, no, that that that's really awesome. And I I wonder if uh, if that's an idea I should maybe bring up to our zoo. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody I know. Yeah, uh, no,
2: I, the last time I, the last time I had spoken in person to Steve Burns, which you know was five years ago, four years ago. I think he told me the sort of the standing, his standing commitment is like, uh, you know, he's willing to go to any zoo in the country. You guys fly him out and he'll meet with your board and he'll, he'll, he'll sell, he'll sell you guys doing what they're doing there. I mean, he really, you know, there's, there's so many, I mean, there's a number of really, really incredible things going on in accredited zoos. And I just, you know, the quarters for conservation one, just whenever I, you know, sort of take a step back and look at the zoo world and the zoo industry, that, that, thing always jumps out at me is just such a remarkable program and a remarkable way to think outside the box
1: you know yeah i, I think that generates incredible guest buy-in and uh you know it's it's good for, i mean there's nothing i can't even think of a single negative honestly about that program so and, um, most and zoos, awesome. i believe most zoos,
2: consider themselves conservation organizations but back to that perception is everything right their their uh visitor or their community they may not consider them a conservation organization i'd love to see some random survey on the streets of boise i would venture to say that the citizens of boise idaho 100 percent consider their zoo a conservation organization because they just went there three months ago put the token in the turtle thing and the turtles are being saved
1: you know yeah yeah that's that's awesome um, okay, well, let's circle back here before we wrap up. Um, it seems like the most favorite segment of the show, uh, at least from the feedback I've gotten, is embarrassing and funny animal related <laughs> stories. So I told a couple. Uh, we've had one every episode. I think it's probably maybe the guest's least favorite part of the show, but it seems to be the audience's favorite part. So um, just going back to whatever kind of animal you want to talk about, would you have a kind of embarrassing, funny animal story that you know happened in front of a guest or a coworker or something like that?
2: I've I've. I know you have yeah, a million. Everybody two. has a million. I've got I've
1: got two. You know, okay. so uh,
2: once again, Matt, this podcast is incredible. The past oh, I appreciate couple, it. The past couple nice, weeks, I've listened to all of the other episodes. Except, Thank you so much. Oh, I think Rochelle, I still need to listen to, but I listened to all the other ones. And thinking about after you'd reached out to me, obviously, I'm thinking about all right. These are the questions getting thrown at me. <laughs> so I've had some time to think about this one.
3: Yeah.
2: And <laughs> full circle, I think it's so perfect to end this uh, because it's you know the the. The role that something like, you know, the, how similar it is, how how much it rhymes with how I got started. Um, I uh, went to the cafe to uh, get lunch. And uh, I think it was a chicken sandwich and some garlic fries. Wow, and- you remember what you had? Yeah, I was, uh, that was kind of my go-to, chicken salad, <laughs> sandwich, and garlic fries. <clears throat> and I go and I'm leaving the cafe to go, uh, you know, meet up with other zookeepers for lunch. And this is, you know, probably seven years ago or something. And the zoo's pretty busy. And I think it was a, there was a lot of field trips. So it must have been, you know, school was still in session. Tons of kids all over the zoo. And I come, I'm, I'm walking out of the cafe. You know, I push the door open. I kind of do a little flip around with my tray and boom. At five or six goals, just slam, yes. slam the tray out of my hand. And as all my food just drops right at my feet, are just going to town, gobbling, 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 scarfing up all the garlic fries and the chicken sandwich. And there was an entire uh, 25, 30 kids, kindergarten through second grade. They all laughed and point and uh the shirt that i was wearing the the uniform it's a t-shirt it had the had the the zoo you know you got the radio and the keys and everything and it was a t they let us wear t-shirts so you have the zoo logo on the front and on the back it says animal staff and all the kids were pointing and laughing and screaming ha
3: ha ha animal staff
2: as these goals, goals just sit you? here. You
1: even wild, wild seagulls. <laughs>
2: oh, man. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, oh, goals, geez. being a penguin keeper are the goals that always give us a hard time. Um, and so, you know, you kind of <clears throat> standing out in the open feeding fish. You know, they're always trying to give you a hard time. And so you just sort of have this real um, sort of a negative response to goals. And yeah. so to get slammed like that at the cafe, and it was the first time of all the time I worked at the zoo, it was the first time ever, that I've been slammed by the goals like that, uh, <laughs> and be <I'm> surrounded <laughs> by children, and have them point and laugh. Yeah, I might sl-
1: have been a little red faced
2: through that. So I, was I was so, I was fire too. engine red. And that
1: also, was- I'd be so sad because I don't know about you, but by the time I actually get to my lunch break, I am so starving, and if I just lost so my hungry. fire lunch before uh, I get to touch it and all those goals were eating, man, that would yeah. be a yeah. uh, embarrassing day. That's a really good one. Yeah. Uh, I- okay, well, um, Thank you so much, Anthony, for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great to get the perspective, like I said, of somebody who was in the industry and is not anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, I I don't know where this show is going. It started off as kind of like, uh, Hey, this is how you can get help being a zookeeper if that's what you want to do. But I feel like the show is kind of organically evolving into just sharing the paths of, of people and, you know, how they got involved and what they're doing now and, um, And I hope, I kind of like that path, actually. I mean, I'm still happy to answer questions about how, you know, help to get into the field and stuff like that. But I think it's really interesting just to be able to tell the story of the people. And honestly, uh, I would do this even if there was nobody listening because it's been so fun just to talk to uh, people in the field, get stories, you know, share their experiences and um, really just put some positivity out there um, about the field. Um, So again, thank you so much for doing that. And the last thing i like to do with my guests before uh, I kind of let them go is just to kind of talk about, you know, if there's anything on your mind that's bugging you or something you just want to get out there, maybe reiterate, reiterate a point that you already made. Um, you know, if you have anything to plug for your uh, um, for the options trading, any any websites or anything like that to plug for <laughs> yourself, like, feel free to do that. Use this venue for that. It'll go out to, you know, a couple hundred listeners or whatever. So, again, you know, just anything at the end here that you might want to talk about would be, uh, would be great
2: yeah um you know I'll just say if you know if anyone uh wants to connect or contact with me, I'm Anthony Brown on Twitter, and that's kind of like uh my main go to communication mechanism um I love social media, I think social media there's uh zoos are doing some in zoos and aquariums are doing some incredible things in the world of social media, and the technology that we have the ability to connect like you said for you know doing this podcast and to just something as simple as wondering, you know, what I would always do is I would look at um a species survival plan for another species or, or a stud book so, or some type of reference. And, you know, maybe I was working with some type of animal and I'd see, oh, hey, Cincinnati Zoo has that species. The fact that you could go into Facebook, to Flickr, to YouTube, type in that animal, Cincinnati Zoo, and boom, instantly be taken there and see dozens of videos to see what it's like from the visitor's perspective to see the behind-the-scenes video from the zoo of when the animal was uh, hatched or born. um, It's just, you know, the ability... I, th- I think it's a phenomenal world that we live in right now for people that are passionate uh, about animals and conservation and passionate about uh, zoos and and their ability to, to find and learn uh, so much is just, I think, it's phenomenal. And I think I always encourage people to... You know, anytime you have a question, um, the greatest thing that I ever learned um, in my entire uh, career was when I was 12 years old on Nature Trail, during Nature Trail training, they teach everyone this. If you don't know the answer to a question, the answer is, I don't know. And then it's up to you. That's all they train you. And then what you realize through experience is then the extension is, let me find out. And that was really hard back
1: then. And now it's so easy. I mean, now we have, you know, the, any answer we possibly want in our pocket, you know, like it's just, uh, I, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but it's just incredible. The amount of information we have access to and the, the, the speed at which we can get that information. But yeah, you're right. Like back then, you know, you're on nature show at 12 years old and, uh you know, ninety six or nine early, early late nineties, whenever it was, and you had to go to an encyclopedia or a library and like look something up. Like I just don't know how anyone got anything done. You know, before yeah, there was yeah. email internet and now you can just know the answer to anything that science knows. So yeah, that's that's amazing. So And it's
2: uh, a, it's a little bit of a double edged sword. Just because yes, it's oh, internet doesn't mean it's true, right?
1: right um right. so, so there's
2: to check your facts. Check your check your facts. You.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay well thank you so much man again uh, it was great catching up with you talking to you again and uh, we wish you luck and if you ever want to come back on to talk about really anything uh, uh, you have an open invitation so um, yeah so uh, thanks again everybody Uh, we'll be back uh, with another episode soon
0: thank you for listening to the zookeeper stories podcast I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way if you like what you heard please subscribe rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher it really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory. Poop
1: everywhere, poop everywhere, poop everywhere.